Hello, everyone. Jim here with a quick preamble. Uh, first off, good to be back. I say more about that in the intro proper, but a couple of notes before we start. First off, I've put the parody songs to rest. Just for now. Uh, might give you a doozy for episode 200, but apologies if they are missed. Just want to get these episodes out and focus on the conversation at hand. There will be transitionary music. Transitionary? There we go. <laughs> from the films that are discussed here and there. But uh, unlike the last two episodes, you're still getting a What We Watched segment because um, I want to review a couple of new releases since I try to keep up with something uh, new on a regular basis. So the, that that's definitely going to stick around for the time being. Also, be sure to visit patreon.com slash directors club for some additional monthly content. Uh, it's mainly focused on one movie title at a time. The side project is called Movies You Should See. There's about three of those up at the moment. It's only $5 a month, and you'll support the show if you like. That's patreon.com slash directors club. Probably see an upcoming commentary track or two as well there. And next year, things may change again around June, but I'm going to wait it out and see... Probably probably won't be till May to make any official decision on that. Regardless, all the yearly traditions are going to continue. The Patreon will be active, and I plan to try and do some more writing over at VoicesVisions.net. Uh, and grad school will be ending for me, yay, uh, at the end of the year, so there hopefully will be more free time. I can keep bringing you great episodes like this one coming up, with returning guest Sergio Mims talking John Sturgis. So let's get to it, and thank you again so much for listening. Your support, your patience, your emails, your shares on social media, and for taking the time to support this show, even if it's changed a lot over the years, and may continue to do so. Who knows? We'll see. Uh, times are wild, that's for sure. But again, thank you for listening, and here we go with the show. and welcome to the Directors Club podcast. I am Jim Laskowski, back as your host for at least uh, another year. We're going to see what happens in 2022. Uh, but it's a true honor to return after Patrick filled in for a couple months there. I need a little break for a lot of reasons, but I really want to thank Patrick, Andrew, Bill, Robert, and Regina for putting out three really great episodes that I wish I could have been a part of, but terrific work all around. And speaking of Bill, uh, as in Bill Ackerman, be sure to pick up the new Kino Lorber release of The People Next Door, featuring Bill's very first solo commentary track, and I, I was happy to get it, and it's excellent as expected. And speaking of excellent... One of the very best film historians and critics out there is back yet again. Uh, I've referred to him as the walking Wikipedia of film knowledge, but he's also a regular contributor to the Movie Madness podcast, a great creator of several Blu-ray commentary tracks. 
uh, radio show host over at WHPK and one of the creators uh, of the Black Harvest Film Festival. Welcome back, the one, the only, Sergio Mims. Hey, everybody. No, thank you so much for those kind <laughs> words. Uh, I do want to say that Black Harvest will be back November 4th to December 2nd in the theater. And, All um, right. And uh, the Gene Sisko Film Center. We're working on a lot of really interesting stuff. We're going to be doing quite a number of uh, retrospective screenings this year. We got quite a number of films that um, this year is the 30th anniversary of some movies, the 50th anniversary of some movies. Uh, We're working on special name guests. And, of course, it's all the new films which are being made. And, you know, it's, it's going to be very exciting. You know, hopefully, fingers crossed, um, we'll be back to full capacity at the Gene Sisko Film Center by November. I sure right. hope so. I mean, this is... We'll see again, how these things yeah. go. But we'll be in the theater regardless. Okay. Yeah. The last time we talked was before everything had changed. Can you believe it? Yeah, it was in February of, yeah, of uh-huh. 2020. Uh, but yeah, I'm, as I've said often in the past, I am, I'm here to learn and listen sometimes more than anything else. Cause I, I've often chosen directors that maybe I'm not as familiar with to sort of gain some education as, as a film enthusiast, I would say. And I, I always try to include guests like you who are very knowledgeable about certain genres and, and to be around when those movies came out. <laughs> Exactly. Oh, no, for sure. But I know Westerns was one of your first loves, you know, growing up and everything. And, you know, I, I've grown to love it more and more the more I explore. I mean, I sort of came to it late, maybe in my, like, when I was in high school. And we're going to talk about this for the What We Watch segment. But the first Western I ever saw was Tombstone. And, it took a while for me to explore you know the genre even further but when they're great they're really great and they have a lot to say about just american behavior and machismo (laughs) you know masculinity of course and this general idea of upholding manhood and power is seen as this ultimate trophy you know but westerns don't always put these heroes on a pedestal uh the, the I feel like that there's a lot of movies that we're going to talk about that showcase like how the past is going to leave men behind, though they want to fight that inevitability through violence. And cowboys are left in the dust in the wake of a better future. And I just think that, you know, their choice to strive for immortality and power and dominance ultimately becomes their undoing in something like uh, Bad Day at Black Rock. Well, you know, the funny thing about older pictures. Well, one of the, I think, well, I shouldn't say funny, but great things about older pictures is that they are a reflection of the attitudes, the beliefs, and behaviors of the time. Now, you can look at a film made in 1944 and you can laugh at it, saying, like, it's politically incorrect and antiquated, but at that time, those were those beliefs, those attitudes. So I think they have a great take away the fact that how well made a film is or how good a film is. Also looking at deeper in terms of what were people thinking of at the time, what was going on, and um, how people felt about things. Um, 
well, we're going to talk about Bad Day in Black Rock, but that movie was considered quite daring at the time. We look at it oh, today, yeah. it's, it's antiquated almost. But at the time, when you look at the theme, um, it was it was quite striking, quite striking, um, because there were very few films that actually dealt with racial hatred, yeah, racial violence. Yeah, I know. And, so, and yeah, you have to look at it through, you know, the, the lens and historical context, really. And I always watch these movies, but I'll, I, like you're talking about, it's just these things are always going to be with us. They're, they're not going anywhere. Oh, yeah. There's, you know, just the way people interact because they hold different beliefs or ideologies. And, you know, you can sort of with some broader Westerns, you can just go, well, that's the good guy and that's the bad guy. And they're going to have a shootout and that's that. But I think, I think they go deeper because a lot of people just sort of dismiss Westerns as just being that, you know, just like, okay, here's the good guy and here's the bad guy. And they're going to shoot each other and, you know, have a confrontation in the end. But when we talk about some of the work of John Sturgis, including I want to bring this up front before we get into what we watch segment, because I think a lot of people are expecting, extended conversations perhaps on the classics like the great escape or the magnificent seven but i wanted to avoid the 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 bigger titles because he has some hidden gems clearly that you brought up to me that i finally caught up with that i was very grateful to at least experiencing these movies some i liked more than others of course but yeah i mean a lot has been said about films like the great escape and magnificent seven for for good reason they're classics right exactly but i wanted to avoid the obvious ones too because you can see them anytime all the time and i wanted i mean this this is a guy who had a career that lasted oh gosh um some 40 years over 40 years yeah so he had a lot, he made a lot of movies, and when you just concentrate on the two ones that everybody knows, Magnificent Seven, Great Escape, they think that's it. He did a lot more than that. He did a lot more than that. Um, and so that's one of the things we want to do is talk about you know what else has he done that you want to take a look, that you want to take a look like look at. And I, I should say that all these films are available. Um, they're available on DVD. I think, with the exception of one, I think, yeah, with the exception of one, they're all available on Blu-ray. All available on oh, Blu-ray. Good. So, well, let me take that back. I'm sorry. One film that I want to mention is, which is not on Blu-ray, is not on Blu-ray. I'll get to that later. Okay, no problem. Blu-ray. And you talk about Great Escape. Criterion last year came out. Finally, with a decent Blu-ray of Great Escape. I mean, that movie has been so badly treated on video for decades. (laughs) And it finally took Criterion to come with a really decent, good-looking, you know, Blu-ray of that movie. You know, so. Oh, and don't forget, for those of you who you think you haven't seen a John Sturgis movie, you have, if you've seen... Uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. <laughs> oh, yeah. I just read the novelization of that, actually, and he's oh. name-checked quite a bit. Right, in which there is a very funny bit, had me laughing, where they digitally superimpose Leonardo DiCaprio in place of Steve <laughs> McQueen 
and the great escape and he gets it down perfectly you know hula, you know you know and it's just yeah it just made, made me laugh my head off right because it's very it's really well done it's really well done and if you but that's from the great escape that's from john sturgis's the great escape oh yeah and i'm i'm sure a lot of people are familiar with things i mean touchstones from things like the great escape and the magnificent seven have been, uh, paid homage in so many things. It's kind of ridiculous. Like, I I mean, I mentioned that tombstone is, uh, was one of the first Westerns I saw, but if you want to count three amigos, you sure can. Cause that, (laughs) (laughs) that, that, like I had no, I was rewatching the magnificent seven and kind of going, Oh my gosh, they basically just stole the plot. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> for that wacky movie and of course the, the same composer too sort of just redid his own score for three amigos yeah, of course gotta mention that basically uh, magnificent seven is a western version of seven, yes. seven samurai uh kira kurosawa's you know uh, oh yeah uh, great great film yeah and that certainly that certainly was a plot that was redone time and time again. But before we get to more John Sturgis talk, let's talk about a couple of newer titles that we've seen for the What We Watch segment. Yeah, before I get to Val, I wanted to quickly bring up uh, another three-letter title, uh, Emma, which is this really surreal and fascinating new film from Pablo Lorraine that I just saw at the Music Box, and it was a thoroughly satisfying visual experience. I am recommending it, though, like a lot of art films, it's kind of an enigma, but I, it was electrifying. It was weird. It was funny. It was sad. It was all these things sometimes within the same scene. And it's basically about this married couple going through an existential crisis after giving back their uh, adopted son for reasons that you'll learn about pretty early on. It does involve fire. Um, and, <clears throat> it, and yeah, at the same time, that's sort of a, uh, a characteristic that the titular mom sort of instilled into him, which is very interesting, but it's also the, the movie ultimately becomes this kaleidoscopic look at the life of a dance artist and the struggles that come with motherhood. And it sparks this interesting dialogue about what it means to create something and the desire to bring life into this world, whether it is an actual person or it's an art form of some kind or you want to simply have another human being be a part of your life. It, it's just all these different things. And I felt like it conveyed so much about us in, in ways that is very rooted in the subconscious, but also it taps into our physicality and it gets very hot <laughs> and very heavy at times. And like a lot of movies I tend to enjoy, not everything makes sense, but it plays out in this fever dream narrative manner while also being emotionally intense in certain ways. Yet I also would, I would say that it's not entirely cohesive on a scene to scene basis. Sometimes things happen. You're like, Hmm, 
really? Okay. I'm just going to go with it. And I sort of did and just accepted it because I was enjoying the experience of watching this, particularly on a big screen with a great score. Uh, it's an acquired taste, but a really interesting one that I'm looking forward to revisiting. And I know this director already has a new movie coming out about Princess Diana, played by Kristen Stewart later this year. Because I believe Emma was a couple years old now, and it's just taken a while for for it to actually open properly here in the U.S. But we'll see. I'm I've become a fan of this director slowly but surely. But uh, yeah, I wanted to bring that one up really quickly. And I'm I'm kind of excited to talk about uh, something that surprised me because I I initially rolled my eyes when I saw the trailer for Val, which is the new documentary that I believe is on Amazon right now you can watch it at any time and you know i just went mm, i just already I, I had concerns about it being completely self-indulgent in a way that was self-congratulatory and it really he he is pretty comfortable with pointing out some of his character flaws uh and certainly now in his in the present day he is struggling terribly unfortunately with um throat cancer so he 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 gets very revealing in ways that surprise me and even my mom my mom watched this with me and she wants to actually own this movie because she was so moved by it and i can understand why i mean there are examples of documentaries even something as recent as uh kid 90 where it's just really self-reflective and personal to where you feel like you're sitting in a therapy session (laughs) you know Uh with a celebrity and you're peeking into their mind and their life in a way that is intimate and revealing i i I, i've i've enjoyed this approach to telling a story um similar to something like tarnation or the work of um Ross McElwee, I think that's how you say his name. Um, yeah. But yeah, he's done a lot of direct, you know, documentaries where he, you know, he puts the camera on himself in a way that sometimes might just scream, oh, this is self-indulgent to include yourself, but it's a part of the story. It makes sense. You know, it's almost like that kind of indulgence is like a paintbrush on a large canvas. And it doesn't bother me as long as the subject is being honest and sincere. And I really do think Val Kilmer is doing that here by showing footage of past um, shoots from over like 40 years, I think of footage and allowing us to peek into his current life, which has been challenging, like I mentioned. Um, But it is, you know, like someone playing home movies while listening to a running commentary. Uh, And I don't think that's a bad approach. And I think he has really good intentions by doing that, I think it was really smart to have his son narrate it. Uh, they have very similar voices, uh, but he's also self-deprecating. And I, I, again, like I, I was expecting him to just be like, I'm a great actor. And cause I just always had that impression from him, but he's no, he's got a good sense of humor about himself and none of it felt forced. Um, and certainly throughout his uh, career, you get to see, you know, some, some segments are longer than others in terms of the films that he's been in. Like they kind of skip over pretty much entirely something like real genius, but then you get really uh, like maybe a good 10 minutes on his experience with Island of Dr. Moreau and working with his idol, Marlon Brando, which good Lord, that shoot. I cannot imagine being on set for that. It was just constant tension. 
and there's a lot of that on display here. You get to see some of the darker sides of being an actor as well as his process. So I, I was really happy with this documentary and pleasantly surprised because again, his heart is in the right place. And it's also very entertaining if you're a fan of Val Kilmer. So. Now I have heard criticisms that the film is too soft pedals. Him Mm. is too soft on him. I can see that Uh, a little bit. I, I have read that. I have not seen the film. Yeah, I mean, he's notorious for being kind of a dick <laughs> on set on a lot of occasions. And I, you know, he, he, he shows snippets of that, more of him being confrontational with a director or at least, you know, saying, I think this is a better approach to this scene kind of stuff coming at it from an actor. But he does seem, in the same way I've heard stories about Edward Norton as being very interactive or at least kind of like taking control on certain occasions. I can see that. I can definitely see why people have said certain things, but then other actors like Robert Downey Jr. sort of come to his defense too and say, Oh no, he's just a really, he he cares about his craft and he's really committed. And sometimes that doesn't always mesh well with certain personality types. And I can see, I can see people thinking that he's, he was really rough <laughs> on certain occasions. And certainly he really gets into it with Frankenheimer uh, on Island of Dr. Moreau, which. De- um, well, that, yeah, that was, I always wish I, Richard Stanley had made his film. Oh yeah. You know? Oh yeah. There was a great documentary uh, about that. <laughs> I'm sure it would be hard to watch, but you know, it's one of those pictures where, the movie that exists, you kind of like it because it's just so loony. Yeah. It's so loony. <laughs> but at the same time, I'm sad because Stanley would have done something with this material, which um, it probably would have been out the box, you know? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I still have, I still have a great love for the, of course, the original version, the um, Charles Lawton. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Island Lost Souls. I have a great fondness too for the '75 version. You know, with Burt Lancaster because I remember seeing that at the show I don't when think it I've came seen out. That one actually. Hmm. Yeah, with Burt Lancaster and uh, Doug McClure. Okay. And Barbara Carrera. Yeah. Um, who directed that one? Don Taylor hmm. directed that one. Um, who did Omen Damon Damon Omen Part Two? Ah, okay. It's, it's actually not bad. It's not bad. Okay. It really isn't. Uh, nice shock, violent twist towards the end, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, yeah, I, I, um, I you know, I, I'm kind of been reluctant to see Val because knowing what he's been through. Yeah, it's, it's really it, hard at times. You know, it's hard, you know? Yeah. It, it reminded me of moments of certainly seeing the Ebert documentary and what he went through with I know. having a similar. It's, I can't see that Ebert documentary again. I remember I went to the screening of that picture. I went with a friend. She left. She had mm. to leave. Yeah. It was too much for her. Yeah. You know? No, there are moments for sure where you see how he's living now, but a lot of it is again, kind of a trip through the past and making me like it starts out basically with behind the scenes of him being on top gun and me realizing, Oh yeah, that was the, like my dad really loved top gun because he was in the Navy and everything. So that 
it makes sense that that was probably my first introduction to Val Kilmer. And then of course, one of my favorite comedies of all time is top secret. And it's like, there were just moments and touchstones throughout this entire uh, experience of watching this documentary of like me going, Oh yeah. <laughs> Val Kilmer was in this movie that kind of made a huge impact at one point in my life. Uh, you know, and, and tombstone, like I said, first Western that I ever sort of became obsessed with. And, you know, it's very quotable. It's, I would say it's imperfect. There's definitely flaws. And I think that was another shoot where the director sort of, mm, I don't know, lost the plot, maybe. You know, there's a good question about the director. The original director was Kevin Jare? Yeah. The screenwriter. Oh. And he was fired. He was fired, and they brought in John Pancosmatos. And I go, George Pancosmatos? You mean the guy did Rambo too? <laughs> yep. You know? And and the story is that basically it was Russell who directed that film. That's what I hear. Yeah. Yeah. Russell directed that movie. And I can believe that. You know? I can believe that. It's a little rushed. It has gone, gone on to become one of the most beloved most recent Western. It has a massive following, um, Tombstone. Massive following. Clearly. And... Um, I'd like to see a 4K of it, actually. That would be nice. Yeah, no, I. it's so much fun. And obviously with that ensemble and all those character actors, you know, even somebody like Stephen Lang, who I wasn't familiar with at all, and then, of course, now he's in that, that Don't Breathe franchise. <laughs> you know, um, him playing uh, Ike uh, Clanton in that, I was just kind of like, oh, that's right, that guy's in this. And then Billy Chubby Billy Bob shows up. Billy Bob Thornton shows up in this too. Yeah, I mean, Billy, Billy Bob, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, there is a connection between that movie and Sturgis, which 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 we will get oh, into. Oh yeah, without a doubt. Uh, and and uh, the new film I do want to talk about is a movie that actually made me very nostalgic, even though it's a very New York centric movie. And I'm not a New Yorker; I'm a Chicagoan. It still brought back a lot of memories. Mm. Now, the movie is called Searching for Mr. Mr. Rugloff. And Rugloff is Don Rugloff. And in the late 60s through the 70s, Don Rugloff was a very familiar name if you followed and loved movies. He was, he owned a theater chain in New York called Cinema 5. And his father was owned movie theaters. His father died very young. He took over the business in his 20s. And during the 60s, he became maybe the most important, influential movie exhibitor in New York. He built these wonderful theaters called Cinema One, Cinema Two, the Sutton, the Plaza, the Beekman, Paramount. Now, how do I know these theaters? That's because when I was a kid, my father would buy the Sunday New York Times every Sunday. Ah, okay. And this is back at the time when they actually had, they would sell the New York, New York Sunday New York Times, which means it was as thick as a, as a phone book. And it had the one ads and the real estate ads and all this advertising, all kind of New York news. But I would grab it for the arts and leisure section because – at that time, movies were still released in New York before they were released anywhere else. <laughs> so I would get, read it to see what movies would be coming to Chicago. 
And the thing I noticed was that a lot of the movies I really wanted to see were playing at the Sutton or the Cinema 1, or the Cinema 2, or the Beekman, or, you know, the Paramount, the Plaza. And, and, and I always noticed, and I said, if it's playing that theater, it's a theater, I, that's a movie I want to see. Now, here's the other thing. Rudloff, in the 60s, formed a distribution company called, called Cinema 5. And he became the most influential he released in this country domestically, um... Z, because the Gravis movie. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, the Rolling Stone film, Jimmy Shelter. Uh, Putney Swope. Yay! <laughs> you know, this movie made me sad because there there are some uh, picture interviews. I mean, there's some footage with Robert Downey Sr., who recently passed away about a month ago, who I wrote a tribute for for the uh, 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 Eber doc, Roger Eber dot com because I'm the only guy around that he saw those movies when it came out. But um, to a friend, um, I know the family saw it. I know that Downey Senior's family saw read it, and I got a really kind email from Robert Downey Jr.'s mother in law. Wow, <laughs> a very kind That's email. Sweet. Yeah. You know? Saying, you know, you really knew his movies. Wow. You know, I we everybody in the family read it. So mm-hmm. wow. So Iron Man read it. Thank you. So um but he but it, it became huge. I mean Monty Python flying uh, Monty Python the Holy Grail was released by Cinema Five. Oh. You know, he he released a lot of films in the sixties and seventies that are influential today. Um um Oh gosh, the David Bowie film, uh, "The Man Who Fell right. to Earth." Yep. Um, and then in the eighties, it all fell apart. There were bidding war. I mean, there was a, a there was a war over control of the company. Uh, he lost out. He actually died in poverty. Mm. Sadly, he died in poverty. But if you know Rugloff, Rugloff was a major name, and this is a wonderful documentary about a golden time of movie going. Yeah, it certainly sounds like it. I'm definitely going to catch up. And when you see pictures of what these theaters look like in New York, they were Marnart because he built these theaters. They were Marnart. They looked like they belonged in the Museum of Contemporary Art. I mean, the, the architecture and the, and the layout and everything, most of them are gone now. Yeah, that's bad. And they were built in the 60s. They're gone now. And his legacy has practically been forgotten. And... It's a tragedy because he he changed independent cinema. He changed film going. He changed film exhibition. This guy, who was a nutcase. <laughs> there are many stories about how crazy this guy was. He was a slob. You know, he had a white shirt in the morning. By the end of the day, he wasn't white anymore. <laughs> uh, he uh, would fire and hire people at will. He fell asleep at every movie he ever saw. He would see a movie, fall asleep in the first meal, say, okay, I'll buy it. <laughs> and the one film he didn't fall asleep on, bombed. So, you know. Oh, my gosh. It's a wonderful documentary. Like I said, it's called Searching for Mr. Rugloff. 
And it was directed by uh, Ira Deutschman. And Ira Deutschman is a guy who started working for him. And Ira Deutschman also has a long, long career in film exhibition. He created United Artist Classics. I think he created also Sony Classics. Uh, he did create a Cinecom. He um, has a long history, long, long history in theater distribution uh, and exhibition. And he started his career as a young guy working for Rudloff. Hmm. And it wasn't until he was at a uh, award ceremony and he heard that Rudloff had died penniless. He said, I had no idea. I hadn't been in touch with the guy for years because he fired me. You know, but he started my career and I owe everything to him. So he went to find out, you know, where was he from? Um, what happened to him at the end? And the whole history of Cinema 5, both the distribution company and the theater chain. It's a wonderful documentary. It's playing at the Music Box right now. I'm sure it's streaming someplace. Please check it out. I'm definitely going to seek it out. because Please check it out. And, and, you know, and, and once again, it's nostalgic for me because he was releasing these movies at this time when, like in a way, I was discovering movies. Yeah. I, I I have this memory of of course listening to um, uh, Roy Leonard and Nick DiGiulio on WGN, and often when they were reviewing something, they probably saw it at a screening or something. And often people would call in and go, "Where where, where can I see this movie you just reviewed?" And sometimes they would have they would say, "Oh, it's uh, it's currently only opened in New York and L.A., but it's going to open up next week in Chicago." <laughs> so you had yeah. to wait a couple weeks sometimes to see something that was just getting buzz elsewhere. And it, it sounds, it sounds like cinema five was uh, a little bit like Miramax long before Miramax happened. Oh, it's a movie makes that, makes that connection. Yeah. yeah. You know, there, would, there, would, there wouldn't be a Miramax without cinema five. There wouldn't be a new line or a fine line. Right. Without cinema five. Uh, there would have been October films. Remember October films? There wouldn't oh, yeah. be there wouldn't be music box films. There wouldn't be a whole lot of movies, of theaters, of distribution companies without Cinema Five. Mm. And it's like I said, it's nostalgic for me because even though as a kid, you know, um, I, I had never been to one of those theaters. Um, I just I knew them because I knew them because I read them from the New York Times, and I just knew that wow, you know, those theaters showed the movies I really wanted to see. Like in the movie, it says like Mel Brooks always wanted his films to open at the Sutton Theater. <laughs> so anytime I saw you know played a Mel Brooks film, always open at the Sutton. You know, Woody Allen film always open at the Beekman. Yeah. yeah. Um, he, there's a funny story when they had uh, Money Puzzle and the Holy Grail. He, <laughs> Rugloff actually had people, he actually had one of his uh, staff people dress up as one of the characters, as King Offer's men, and be followed by somebody with coconuts, <laughs> you know, in New York City on the street. You know. <laughs> See, Money Puzzle and the Holy Grail now. Oh my gosh, that's amazing! You know he was a showman. 
Yeah, and Cinema Five. They, I mean, the films they released, uh, they received uh, twenty-five Oscar nominations and six wins over the years. Thirty-five. Yeah, thirty-five oh, Oscar wow. nominations. That's amazing. Yeah, <laughs> and then they had six Oscar wins. <sighs> yep. So that's definitely an educational experience, a great documentary that I have no doubt will uh, you, you'll learn about a, a, a name that, you know, certainly he broke ground in ways that people don't know about necessarily. And that's why I love documentaries like this, because you can learn so much about history. Right. And, and um, as I said, this made me nostalgic sure. because it comes from a point when, you know, <laughs> At the time, I was I was going to movies every weekend. I would see anything, you yep. know. If my father take me, I go see it myself, you know. And I would see anything, whether it was foreign, whether it was black exploitation, whether it was just exploitation, whether it was just X rated, whether it was anything. <laughs> just go see it, you know. Yeah. And, and uh, um, going back to Tarantino, I, I remember. Uh, when Once Upon a Time in Hollywood came out, I didn't go to the event screening because I wanted to see it on opening day in 70 millimeter at the music box. Of course. Okay. And, uh, but our friends, uh, Colin Suter and uh, Eric Childress went to the screening. Okay. And both of them told me later before I saw it, they said, Sergio, you are going to love this picture. You're going to love it. It's going to bring you, and I knew what they meant. It's going to bring you back. It's going to bring you back to a time that your eyes were wide open and you were discovering movies and discovering the possibilities of what movies can do and what it could be about. And um, that's exactly what that movie did. It just brought me. I said, "Jesus Christ, wow!" Yeah, and it's a it's a total L.A. movie too. And you didn't grow up in L.A., but no, I didn't grow up in L.A. Yeah. But the times yeah. and what was going on in movies at the time, which is as I said before, this this sixty nine seven that was the big change when the rating system came in. Sure, you know, and people don't people don't know. You know, like I said, I was around before movies were rated. You know, and I can't tell you how the movie industry changed absolutely overnight when the rating system came in. Because filmmakers said, now I got the freedom to do whatever I want to do. Yeah, I know. It's, it's an incredible time for movies in general that time. You know, I always go back and go, wow, this was made and I wish I could have been there to see it on opening night or something like that. And certainly going to a place like New York. I've only been there a couple of times myself and I've, you know, been to a couple of theaters, but every time I go to New York, I'm just kind of in awe of the arts and like how they're just so openly embraced in terms of theater and film out there. Uh, Yeah. I tend to go to New York two, three times a year. Um, uh, Not lately, (laughs) but I I tend to go two, three times. And I never see movies. I do everything. I do other things. Uh, but um, I do remember the first time I went to New York, I had a, a great uncle who lived in Brooklyn. And uh, he was in the Merchant Marines. Hmm. Okay. And so when we went to his house, he had stuff from all over the world in his house because he had been in Merchant Marines. He had been over the world like 10 times over. And I remember 
my father take me to see Dirty Dozen oh. <laughs> in New York City. And uh, and the other thing I remember is that Times Square scared the hell out of me. <laughs> yeah, I, I can understand why. As a kid, it scared the hell out of me. And and uh, because of all these people and there's all these lines and I don't, I don't, I don't, it, it just scared the hell out of me. Um, now, when I go to New York, one thing I always do is before I leave around midnight, one, two in the morning, I go to Times Square and I hang out because to me it's it's Playland. Oh wow, it's Playland. Because you see all the ads and the lights and everything. Yeah. I'm like a root. I'm like a Midwestern root. Holy <laughs> look at that. I never seen all the pretty lights and colors. <laughs> yeah. Golly. Well, it's it's funny because I, I mentioned uh, our, our, our mutual friend, Bill Ackerman, is responsible for what I consider to be my best experience visiting New York. And it was recently because – uh, Paul Thomas Anderson, right after Jonathan Demi passed away, was doing a retrospective and showing uh-huh. his work out there. And, uh, you know, Bill made me aware of it. So I said, well, I cannot miss this because I love Jonathan Demi. And, of course, I want to meet my favorite director working today and hear him talk about Jonathan Demi live. And so not only did I experience that and getting to meet Paul Thomas Anderson, but uh, there was at around the same exact time there was a uh, a late screening of my favorite Scorsese movie, After Hours. And what a uh, perfect movie to watch while you're visiting New York. <laughs> you know, and Griffin Dunn was there in attendance. So, good Lord, what a double feature I had. I had, Well, actually, I think I saw three movies total uh, that day. I don't know if it was the whole day or not, but it was um, Melvin and Howard, Married to the Mob, and then after hours. So <laughs> that's a great way to spend uh, a weekend in New York. Where did they screen it? Hmm? Where did they screen the film? I can't recall the name of the theaters. Uh, was it the Film Society? Was it Lincoln Center? I think it was, yeah, I think it was Lincoln Center. Okay. Yeah. But nope, great times. And, uh, you know, I, I just really anticipating even just a trailer or some news about the new Paul Thomas Anderson movie. Cause it's supposed to come out in the fall and we haven't, we don't even know what it's about yet. Uh, yeah, I forgot the name of it. I don't even know if this is the official name, but everybody keeps calling it soggy bottom. Soggy bottom. Yeah. Expect something soon. In the next two or three weeks. Yeah, I would hope so. Um, but yeah, I, you, know, you mentioned Tarantino, of course, and uh, he was a big fan of the director of this episode. So let's get to it. Mr. John Sturgis. born uh, right around the corner from us in Oak Park. That's right. He's in New York, like, um, like Ernest Hemingway, born in uh, Oak Park. Yeah. Yeah. And as a kid, he uh, really enjoyed early silent Westerns and stars like Tom Mix, uh, eventually wound up at RKO and began an apprenticeship as an editor. 
he, I think is a. I should say, let me add that yeah. a, a lot of directors, quite a number of directors, started out as editors mm-hmm. at RKO. John Sturgis, Edward Dimitrik, Robert Wise. Uh, Robert Wise, you know, don't forget, editing Citizen Kane. He also mm-hmm. was the guy responsible for the cutting, the butchering of Magnificent Andersons. But I want to give uh, Robert Wise a break because if you know the real story, Orson Welles himself has a lot to blame about what happened to that movie. It wasn't a simple story like they took the film out of his hand and did we cut it. No, Orson Welles was his own worst enemy at, at times, too. Yeah, I know. I don't. I don't doubt that as well. But um, Sturgis made his directorial debut with *The Man Who Dared* at Columbia. Ended up at MGM after the success of *The Walking Hills*. Um, yeah, he, he like a lot of directors of this era started out m- making you know various B pictures and yeah, that's what they all did. yeah started doing pictures. Yeah, right. I, I saw an early one called *Mystery Street*, a film noir. From uh, 1950, yeah, <laughs> Ricardo Montalban, who, of course, I my first experience was with the Naked Gun, uh, and see, I thought I thought you were going to say those commercials about with him and the Corinthian leather. <laughs> yeah, that too, that too. Um, no, but like I, Mystery Street, you know, it, it, it as in terms of the plot, it kind of plays out predictably, predictably. But John Alton's cinematography, good lord, he's just. He's a master, really, and it was shot yeah. on location in Boston. So that you know, it's worth seeing for sure. That that early film of his, and you know, I haven't seen as many of the pre Bad Day at Black Rock pictures, but that one was good. Uh, Two, I do want to mention. Most people will say that Bad Day in Black Rock was his big breakout movie. Mm-hmm. It was, but it kind of wasn't because there were two earlier films he made, the two previous movies he made. Uh, he made a film called The People vs. O'Hara with Spencer right. Tracy. And that's available in Warner Archive. That's a film that's not on Blu-ray. But I want to mention that film because it was like he was working with Spencer Tracy. Yep. It's first time. And Spencer Tracy, by this time, was not an easy guy to work with. <laughs> I've heard. And they got together. They got along evidently pretty well. He worked with him more than once. There's also Old Man in the mm-hmm. Sea, which I may go into just because it's even Sturgis hated that picture. It's <laughs> you know, it's it's not good. Yeah, it's disappointing it's for sure. Book. Great book, it's a fantastic book. It's one of those books that you really couldn't make into a movie. It's a certain tone mm-hmm. that I don't think a movie can capture. But um, I could do my impression of Spencer Tracy in that movie you want to hear. Oh, sure. Well, later. sure. I mean, that's what. what. So, um, um, and so he did people, and then and then after that, he did a film called um, Escape from Fort Bravo, right? Which is on Blu-ray, Monarchy. and that's a really important film for him because. A, it's the first film that was shot in the 1.85 ratio, mm-hmm. 1.8, which is now what we see normally. The scope is 1.85. That was the first film to be shot in that, in that ratio, okay? Number two, it's a movie that really used the landscape well. And one thing Sturgeon could do so masterfully is use it's the landscape. Oh, for sure. It's a space. And this is the film he made before Black Rock. And in the final 30 minutes, it's really this tense standoff between this cavalry and this Indian attack 
Apache attack, where he uses the the spatial relations between where the soldiers are and where the Apaches are and the use of the land, because basically they're exposed out in the open while the Apaches are hidden in the rocks and crevices. And um, it's masterfully done. The script itself is very uneven. It's not that great. But the last half hour really shows what he could do. And I think it was because of that that when they did Bad Day in Black Rock, I think MGM said, this is the guy. Yeah. Uh, because uh, it was the first film shot in scope. I'm talking about Bad Day of Black mm-hmm. Rock. For MGM. For MGM, correct. It was the first m- scope movie for MGM. And um, it's a very simple story. Yeah. It's a very, very simple story. It's the stranger in town who asks questions and discovers that there are deep and dark secrets going on. Spencer Tracy is this guy who shows up in a black suit, black hat. And when you shot this film, it was like 100 degrees, 120 every day. I don't oh know God. Got through. Yeah, you could feel it, too. You could feel the sweat. And by the way, this misnomer. He's not... He, he has both arms. Most people say he's one-handed. No, no, no. He had, if you watch carefully, he has two arms. It's just that his right arm is paralyzed. That's right, yeah. And uh, good old Lee Marvin. It looks like you could use a hand. <laughs> right. He has, he, you know, it's not like he's hiding his, his, his arm. No. His, his right arm is paralyzed mm-hmm. because from the war in, in Italy. You know, he was wounded. And Sturgis and he said there was only one scene they cut where Tracy takes out his hand and puts it down on a on a shelf, to, like to show that he can't move it, right? Yeah, but um, you don't need that. But you don't need it because the movie's only eighty one minutes. Yes, that's what I loved. <laughs> you look at this picture and it says so much with so little. Mm-hmm. And Spencer, it's one of the greatest performances by Spencer Tracy. He was nominated, right? I think Sturgis was as well. Yes, Sturgis was nominated. It was. The first time he was nominated for a part for a role that Sturgis directed. Right. Tracy was also nominated for Old Man in the Sea. Mm, yeah. <laughs> but I, I'm a sucker for this premise. You know, it's like it, it's kind of like a noir Western, you know, it's like a combination of the two. The war in the sunshine. Yeah. But yes. Yeah, no, exactly. And it's. I think even Sturgis said that it doesn't get any better than this for him. Like, I mean, it ended up being his, the favorite, the favorite picture that he did. And I, I, I think I agree, honestly, because it's tight, it's taut. And I could see the, the influence of this movie on so many directors, like, like, um, like John Carpenter, <laughs> you know, oh, yeah. John McCready. Uh, yeah, I think he probably borrowed the name. I think he was a fan of this movie. And just the way he, like you mentioned, us- utilizes the frame and all of these background actors, you see them thinking or you see them doing things subtly that don't always call attention to themselves. That I love this ensemble cast. I mean, everybody in here makes an impression. Robert Ryan is uh, you know wearing a red cap at, at the beginning, and I'm surprised it doesn't say MAGA uh, on it, M A G A, uh, because of the way he is. Ironic, because Robert Ryan was a very well-known progressive liberal mm. in Hollywood, and as a matter of fact, he was a Eugene McCarthy delegate. 
in the Chicago 1968 uh, Democratic Convention. Oh, wow, that's amazing. Uh, His house was picketed by right wingers because they said he was too liberal, you know. Um, He came up rough. He came up through the streets. I mean, he was a boxer. Oh, he's Um, so great in the the setup. He was a hobo for a while. He rode the rails. He saw how people lived, how real people lived, and it affected him. And everybody who worked with him, said he was one of the most magnificent persons he ever wanted to work with. And, um, but he was so good at playing really bad guy. You look at, uh, what's the film, uh, Robert Rice film, um, Odds Against Tomorrow. Oh, right. Mm-hmm. Where he's this really over-the-top racist, you know? Yeah. And, but he was the exact opposite, you know, in real life. And, um, he, uh, it, it was going back to Black Rock in in the uh, my, one of my absolute favorite things in that movie is when I'm talking about Tracy is when Tracy goes to see Dean Jagger, who's the sheriff. Oh, right. Mm-hmm. And he goes to see him because he, he can't get answers from anybody. It, I, we don't want to give it away. You haven't seen it. But Tracy arrives in this town in the middle of nowhere in the desert to do something. He's only going to be there for one day. We don't want to tell you what he's there for. There's a reason. And there is a reason why people don't want to talk to him. Okay? But he can't get any answers because this is the guy he's trying to find. So he finds that um, Dean Jag, who's the sheriff of the town, is a drunk. You know, he's just a drunk. And And he's kind of a pushover, (laughs) you know? Right. And... There, there's a scene when uh, Dag, uh, Dagger is reaching for his bottle and it slips out of his hand and Tracy grabs it before it falls. And Dagger says, man, you move, you move pretty fast for a crip. He doesn't finish it. He's going to say for a crip. Right, right. Look at Tracy's eyes. Yeah, it's a powerful moment. He has such contempt for him. Not just that he's insulted him, but he has contempt for, him for what this man has become. You're supposed to be the law man. Yeah, it's all these character you moments like that. that. And he just looks at him. And look how this shot, he has the fedora and the hat brings the shadow over half his face. And you just see his eyes just burning down on that on dagger. And he doesn't say a word. You know? Yeah. You just see the contempt in his eyes. You know, and it's some great lines. My absolute favorite line is when he tells uh, Ernest Borgnine, no, no, you're wrong. You're wrong at the top of your voice. <laughs> that fight sequence is wonderful. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, you know, if you if you heard well, the unfortunate thing uh, in the Blu-ray is that when this movie came out on Laserdisc, mm-hmm. Um, there was a commentary by Sturgis. He was still alive at the time. He died in 1992. And, but when it was released on DVD and, and Blu-ray, I guess there was a rights problem. So they got somebody else, they got some professor to do a commentary, and I'm going to tell you right now, yeah, it ain't yeah good. it's fine. It's not good. It's not good. <laughs> you, can, you, can find, <clears throat> you can find the Sturgis commentary. It's on a website called Cinephilia. You can find it and download. Oh, I'm it. I'm going to put it in the show notes, Sergio, because it right. is it is a treat. And sp- again, speaking of Paul Thomas Anderson, he said it's his 
favorite commentary and something that he learned a lot from to the point where if you want to if you want to learn how to make movies, don't go to film school. Listen to John Sturge's commentary. Exactly. Yeah. On Bad Day of Black Rock. And he's I can see what he's con- I can see what he's going for. It's clean, it's precise, like Sturge's is no nonsense. Right. Exactly. He tells you this is what I did, this is how we did it. And this is what I was trying to do. And this is how and this something came up and this is how I, I dealt with it. I want to say something about Sturgis. Okay. I think he's a great film director. I think he's one of the great film directors. Did he have a visual style? Well, no, you don't say that. But what he definitely had, what I call a real incredible sense of story and structure. Mm-hmm. Almost all his films he structures the film so that he tells you exactly, he lays it out. These are the characters you should pay attention to. This is the story. This is the premise. Then the second half of the movie is the payoff. Yeah, he's so good at building. But that's what he does so brilliantly. He builds. He does a great escape. Yep. He does not Mr. Seven. He doesn't. Oh, he he did it in you know Eagle. Eagle has landed. Even though he practically <laughs> didn't. He left that movie after a shot. Yeah, you know? he was more interested in fishing at that point. Right. Yeah. But here's the thing. I give him credit because he's tr- he already he shot the film. You can only edit it one way. Yeah, and like Hitchcock, he never used storyboards. And you know some of the right. things that he 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 mentioned in that commentary is the trick of suspense is to do nothing and make people sweat. The perfect camera technique is one the audience doesn't even know is happening. And film is about reacting, not acting. Right. He, he, um, he's, okay. he's, he's, he's one of the old school directors, the hard drinking, mm-hmm. hard living, um, man's man director in the, in the vein of a well watch, John Ford, um, you know, um, those guys, you know, they were tough, hard drinking, um, no nonsense, you know, let's get it done, get her done, let's get it done, you know, he wasn't about to fancy it up, he wasn't about calling attention to the camera, or any sort of visual tricks, he was interested in story. He was interested in conflict. Yes, and character. He was yeah. interested in dilemma. Mm-hmm. That's what he was interested in, the basic story structures. Yeah, there wasn't know? a lot of movies that I watched where I was like, ooh, that's an amazing you know, camera trick, like something that you know Hitchcock or De Palma would do. You know, I, Again, like they often call attention to what the camera is doing in a way that I think is interesting. But Sturgis doesn't necessarily do that he, because he's so focused on the characters and the story and putting the camera exactly where it needs to be. Right. You know, it's like that shot where um, um, the men in, in, in Black Rock, are, they're standing near the, 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 rail, the, the railway oh, tracks. Oh, that's so, so beautifully kind staged. Of, oh. Look at that composition. And it's, it's so elegant. Yep. And it doesn't call attention to yourself, but you realize that's perfectly framed. Everybody is placed in a specific, specific spot for a reason in that scene. Right. And then he does a reverse angle, mm-hmm. which is the same. And it, it, it repeats itself. It's like, wow. 
you know, because at that time, remember, they were still trying to figure out CinemaScope. Sure. Well, even that even that o- original opening, I think, was very different. Uh, that like the title sequence itself, like I think the uh, maybe the one of the producers or something wasn't happy with it, and then they're like, "No, we got we got to give this movie some momentum." So they they did that sh- reverse shot of the train roaring in to sort of capture that right. momentum. And and he and um, when I said they're still figuring out CinemaScope, you see a lot of the early CinemaScope films. Somebody's on extreme left, somebody's on extreme right, and it's a tree in the middle. <laughs> Or you had somebody walk across the screen, you know, and then you had the problem. And I think I said this on one of your previous shows about the CinemaScope months at the time, oh, okay, where the the image was actually somewhat the frame, the image you would see on the screen was actually distorted, so it was looked kind of squeezed at the end and a little stretched out in the middle. And so, if you did a close somebody's face, it looked their faces looked wider, <laughs> like they had mumps. So you had, if you were a good DP, you had to figure out how to hide that. So it wouldn't be noticeable. I, I've seen some early CinemaScope films, like fifty four, fifty five, where um, <laughs> there's one movie where. This woman walks across the screen. She's real thin. Then she kind of widens out, and then she walks in. She gets thin again. Can I see that again? What just happened? <laughs> Twenty pounds walking from one to the other screen and lost it again. It's like a funhouse you know? mirror approach. Yeah, it is. Yeah. You know? um, but yeah, like Spencer Tracy lost the Academy Award to his co-star and nemesis Ernest Borgnine. Well, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. pretty wild that they get into a fight. <laughs> it's like, oh, damn it. And then I think uh, Spencer Tracy and Walter Brennan didn't get along due to political differences. And yeah, I can see that. Yeah, yeah. Tracy was a little old, Brennan was not. Brennan was also, from stories I've heard, not a great guy to work mm, with. That's too bad. Um, but uh, as I said, he was nominated also for. Old Man right. Okay. Mm-hmm. Which Sturgis directed, Sturgis didn't like, which is a great novel. It's a novella by Ernest Hemingway. Which is about an old man, an old Cuban, trying to catch this Marlin. Okay. Ernest Hemingway writes it like it's the struggle of the ages. Okay. <laughs> Takes itself way seriously. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great book. It's a great book. Uh, you can read it in an hour. It's only like 120 pages. Um, but they decided to make a movie of it. And so you have a lot of things of Tracy in this boat. Fish. Hey, you gave me a battle today, Fish. I, I get you tomorrow, Fish. You, you see, Fish. I kept, you know, I kept, this is what I wanted him to say. Fish. Fish. I love you. <laughs> I love you. Yeah, that's what I wanted to say. Well, he goes, he keeps on fish. It says the book is wonderful. Yeah, the book. If you if, if you want to get into Hemingway, read that book. You know? Yeah, I think you. I think even Hemingway was a fan of of uh, Bad Day at Black Rock. <laughs> you know, yeah. and you want to see Ernest Hemingway? Uh, he does a cameo at the end of the movie. Oh my gosh, I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. Gotta watch. At the end of the movie, a little boy goes to a bar. If you look closely in the, ba- in the back, you see Ernest Hemingway with a group of other people in a, at a table in hmm. the back. Well, Sturgis wasn't too crazy about that, or even 
you know, something like that became a classic, like gunfight, uh, okay. Corral. Like he felt that was too staged, uh, and like, yeah, he made up for it. We're going to go into that. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's unfortunate. I mean, I think gunfight at okay. Corral is good. I don't know if, uh, I'd elevate it to, you know, I've only saw the fitness cast. Yeah. I'm, I'm a fan of okay. Corral. But I think some of the, the other titles you mentioned, I feel a little bit more passionately about, including Last Train from Gun Hill. Wow. Right. That is a, wow. a, a movie which I'm very happy, I'm very, very happy, uh, has been basically rediscovered in the last few years. Um, it's a great, great looking Blu-ray from Paramount now to replace the old DVD don't even get the DVD. Get this new Paramount Blu-ray, which is a 6K restoration. Ooh. Now the 2K, now the 4K is a 6K restoration. Holy cow. I'm definitely going to pick that up. I mean, I, I don't think there's a lot yeah. of extras on it or anything, but still. Not much. It's just got a Leonard Maltin introduction, which doesn't really say much. I see. Um, but this is such, this is what, this is perfect of an adult Western. Mm. This is an adult Western. Um, it, it, it begins shockingly. Oh, man. Shockingly. Rough. This is, and this is shows you the, the maturity of Hollywood because by this time, by this time, 59, this movie mm-hmm. came out, um, the cracks were beginning in the production code. Sure. Okay. Cracks were very obvious. You couldn't do, you really couldn't have done this movie uh, 10 years earlier. You could have done it, or if you do, if you did it, would very much toned down and boulderized. But this movie starts out shockingly. It's uh, Kirk Douglas and Anthony Quinn and and Carolyn Jones, and um, it's a and uh, it's about um, to make it very simply. Kirk Douglas is a sheriff, and his wife is is brutally raped and murdered. Beginning now, it's off camera, but you hear it, and it's it's ugly. Yeah. Oh, I mean, not seeing it really, I think, adds right. to it. She's witnessed by, 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 her, by her son. His, his wife is Native American, okay? And so, also, this movie has one of my favorite lines ever, you know? Uh, I'll say it in a minute. Um, so, Douglas basically finds out that the person responsible, at least one of the persons responsible, works for this guy named Belden played by Anthony Quinn. And Anthony in Belden is this old friend of Douglas. They went separate ways, right? Belden became this rich rancher. He owns this town, Gun Hill. And the upshot, I'm not giving anything away, is that turns out one of the persons responsible for the rape and murder is Belson's son. Yep. Played by Earl Holloman. And it becomes a suspense thriller Kind of in the vein of High Noon, but High Noon is an overrated picture. I think much better. <laughs> I, I agree with you, and it's, a, it's got a little dash of three ten to Yuma because of the train involved. Right. Yeah, and um, but it ends bitterly. Mm. This is a by the end of this picture. Yeah, the good guys have been vanquished, but it comes at a price. Yeah, it comes at a very heavy price, and by the end of this movie, those who are left alive 
are not the same. They'll never be the same again. Yeah, and you get so invested in these characters in ways like, I mean, we mentioned how effective he is at building over time and right. creating suspense and tension in in ways that, like, I mean, there's that amazing moment where um, uh, Kirk Douglas is uh, got, has gotten Anthony Quinn's son tied to a bed, and that speech he gives about slow justice and being hanged is, yeah. I think even um, Douglas Trumbo was called in for rewrites. And I, I would imagine that he, oh, really? yeah, okay. I think he contributed maybe that speech. Cause it's, it's really dark and heavy and you don't, you don't expect <laughs> something like that. Blacklisted by that time. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I, I would say like some of the, sometimes like the chipper score doesn't match kind of the seriousness of things going on. I like the score. I like that yeah. score. Like yeah, just at cool. times. It's not like consistently to where it yeah. took me out of the movie or anything. Um, but I mean, it's it's there to heighten the story. And I, I, you can't go wrong when you when it becomes the Kirk Douglas versus Anthony Quinn show, you know. And like this is way more effective than something like Revenge, <laughs> which also has Anthony <laughs> Quinn. The thing about Anthony Quinn and, and they had a, they had a real rival, mm. right? And there's a movie they made a couple years earlier called uh, uh, Ulysses. Oh, okay. Which I is on Blu-ray, but Kino. I remember seeing a, the kid. I, I love it's the story of Ulysses, sure. right? And it was shot in Italy. It was it was like the first movie where two big movie stars did an Italian movie, you know. <laughs> and about, and one of the things that happened, according to the commentary, is that Kirk Douglas and Anthony Quinn had a running contest to see who could sleep with more of the actresses in the oh, movie. Oh my lord! Oh my! Guess who won that contest? Hmm. Anthony Quinn. Of course. <laughs> of course. So I think Douglas is always jealous of him, mm-hmm. you know? And so, but I, the, just one of the things that I love is when he, he goes to see Quinn. And they hadn't seen each other for oh, years. That's such a good scene. And they're talking about, you know, my wife was murdered and all that stuff. And slowly it dawns on, on Quinn that he's talking about his son. Yep. And then you can see that it, Douglas real, begin to realize this. Douglas, I mean, that Quinn knows who those men are, you know. But they're trying to play it off, you know, like, uh, no, I don't think I've uh, had anybody like that here. And he's thinking, oh, my God, it's my son, you know. Um, it's, a, it's a fantastic film. It's a fantastic I know it's movie. So, it, it, again it's very tight, very taut and it's kind of Yeah, it's only 94 minutes it's taut. Yeah. And you, you feel know? every minute. It does right, it does what it needs to do. There's not one minute wasted in this film. Um it, um uh, uh, Carolyn Jones is an interesting character mm-hmm. in the picture mm-hmm. because essentially she's a prostitute. They you know they couldn't find on say it, but she's a prostitute who happens to be also the mistress of Anthony Quinn. And so um, she at first tries to be neutral, but clearly when she realizes what's going on, she's clearly on Douglas's side and tries to help him out. Right. And as we find out, as, as we find out, um, she's, she has returned to the town. She was in the hospital because Quinn had beaten her up. It's a throwaway line. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. That's I remember right. that. Okay. Yeah. 
Yeah. So I was like, well, wow, they had this very strange, abusive relationship. And I think she's at the point where she said, I'm tired of this. Mm-hmm. You know? Even though at the end of the film, there's a price. Yep. Now, my favorite line in the movie, once again, this is like, it's still very much 1959. It's still very much politically incorrect, right? <laughs> but it's when they come back from, when Douglas has come back from the funeral of his wife with his father-in-law, who's this Native American. They don't make it clear what tribe he's from, right? And the guy says, um, Douglas says, I'm going to go catch the guys who did. And the father-in-law says, kill him. Kill him slow, Jimmy way. I me. I just like so. The Indian way is killing people slow. I right? guess so. <laughs> I guess so. Yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Such a great script, and oh, but you know, and I, I hadn't watched the Magnificent Seven in quite a while, and I'd forgotten about that line about <laughs> about. Um, we, we we thought you might rape the our, our women here or something, and and Yul Brynner goes, "Well, we might, but you could have given us the benefit of the doubt." Right, right. I was like, "Oh my yeah. god, you can't get away with that today at all." But the line I always the, the line I always that kills me. Well, that always kills me, and I just put I said this reason in the commentary about things you can say things you can say in movies you can't say today. Okay. Mm-hmm. Frank Sinatra movie called uh, Lady in Cement was the sequel to Tony Rowe. Ah, okay. I haven't seen it. Tony Rowe's pretty good. Lady in Cement isn't, yeah. isn't that great. Okay. And I remember seeing this as a kid with my fa- with my father. He took me to see both movies. Okay. And, and Lady in Cement was rated R. It was like one of the big R-rated movies, first R-rated films. Okay. So it's with Frank and with Kel Welch. Okay. So the thing with Frank Sinatra is over this pool and Roberta Kelch She's in the pool, she gets out, and she sees Frank Sinatra, okay? And so I guess she's immediately turned on by this aging, overweight, bad toupee-wearing guy, right? And she and the line she says to him, first line, she, she says, well, should I scream break now or call the police later? <laughs> and, and Frank Sinatra says, well, I'm seeing all the call the police later, you know? And I go, <laughs> Like, it was the time, folks. Yeah. <laughs> the time. You had to be there. That's my mantra. I was there. You had to be there. You know? <laughs> I, I got to say, I would have loved to have, I would have loved to have been there for something like, uh, like the Magnificent Seven when that came out. Because w- one thing I'm sure everybody who knows all these films that we're mentioning, casting, the ensemble. Like John Sturgis just knows how to put all the, and they were used over and over and over again. A lot of these character actors at the time would pop up throughout these, these films that he put out, but you know, somebody like James Coburn really makes a strong impression in something like the Magnificent Seven. That was his, that was his breakup part. For sure. That was it. Yeah. They're not just like everybody in that movie makes an impression. You know Robert Vaughn. That yep. was he had done some movies. I think he's in a. I'm a. I think he's in. I'm. A, yeah, I was a teenage caveman. He was in that oh, boy. Seen that on TV. Seen that on TV as a kid. Um, but yeah, and that was also kind of like the big breakup of Steve McQueen. He had been in some movies, and he had been in a previous Sturgis film called uh, Never So Few. Uh, 
But um, that was the film. That was the picture that broke him out. Yeah, him and Yul Brenner you know? were kind of going at each other. <laughs> yeah, you know, because you're an actor, you have an ego, and you you want to stand out in the scene. So it makes sense, right? And Steve McQueen was a master steam sealer. Yeah, a master steam sealer. Never put a prop with Steve McQueen because he would use it. He would use it. And to steal the scene from you, don't put a bottle of beer, don't put a hat, <laughs> don't put anything next to him because he would use it and steal it from you. Flipping a coin, yeah. Flipping a coin because you're watching him. Yep. What's he doing with it? He's not, you're not watching Brenner, you're watching him. Right. Yeah, for sure. So, um, yeah, please check out Last Train of Gun Hill. Um, the next film, I, I really got to mention because it's so relevant for today. Is the Satan bug. Yeah, this one was really slow for me. I mean, I, I got into it. I, I, I mean, I just, I think out of all the new ones. slow because he really takes the time to set it yeah. up. Yeah. Takes an enormous amount of time to set it up. And essentially what's it about is, talk about so relevant today. Whew. My God. Scary. Relevant today. It's scary. It's scary. plays like a horror I mean, movie almost. Yeah. A great score by Jerry Goldsmith. Mm-hmm. Great score by Jerry Goldsmith. It's about this top secret government lab which they have created this biological warfare they call the Satan bug. One drop could kill a room full of people. A flask could wipe out an entire city, maybe an entire state, and wipe out the rest of the thing. It gets stolen, okay? Now they got to find out, the government got to find out who stole it. Turns out to be a madman, this millionaire madman. Of course. Think about this picture. Is that I think yes, it is slow first, but it's intentional. You know, he slowly builds it up. Yeah, it's like a procedural and, and because you're getting to know all these right. all these parties that are involved. And I, it, really, it really, I think, it draws you in in the, uh, the second half of yeah. the movie. And with exception of the last maybe ten minutes, most of the film is set out in desert. Most of the film is set out around Palmdale, California, Palm Springs. And even in the daytime, the use of the land and the landscape has such a ominous presence. Mm-hmm. It's the use of shadows, you know, against the landscape. It's like in this open space, it feels like everything is closing in on you. And I said, how does Sturgis do that? You know, it's, you know, and that's the point. Even in this fast open space, it's still claustrophobic. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I feel that he's able to do that with these wide open spaces in ways that few directors do. And I, I wouldn't say like there's a, like an intense immediacy to everything that's going on. This isn't this isn't contagion or outbreak or even the Andromeda strain. It's a different approach to this type of biological chemical weapon that you know is going to wipe out humanity. Kind of a story. It's 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 deliberately paced. 
Um, you know, and I, the actors are do what they do and nobody really stands up. Maybe Richard Basehart is, is good, but well, he's got the best part. He's got the best role. Yeah. Um, you know, George Maharis was a TV star and this was sort of like his attempt to break out, to become a movie star. It didn't mm-hmm. catch. He didn't catch. Um, but, um, it's it's I think I think it's fascinating, um, but the film he made after it, well there was a Hallelujah Trail. Let's skip that one. I don't know Hallelujah Trail. <laughs> yeah, that was but, one I didn't think to catch up with. But mm. you no, know, there are people who like it. It's it's it was a movie that came in the wake of it's a mad 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 world. Right, right. So everybody wanted to do a big crazy big expensive roadshow slapstick comedy. Okay. Um, this film doesn't work. Uh, Sturgis could do humorous scenes, but he really couldn't do comedy. And this one is only funny if you think being drunk is really funny. <laughs> so, uh, if you think the idea of a bunch of Native Americans just being drunk and a lot of jokes about people drinking and having visions and is that funny to you for two and a half hours go ahead be my guest nah i'm gonna take hour of the gun any day i know i had i had a debate with one of my fellow commentators about this picture he loves this he thinks it's great i think it's i said ah 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 no yeah even surges is gonna fumble every once in a while (laughs) <laughs> right. Uh, but the following film he made of that is one of his great films, Hour of the Gun. It's so good. And then I will, you know, the reason why I brought up Val Kilmer and Tombstone is like, I always just went, well, he's clearly the best Doc Holiday, but I don't know. There's everybody in this is pretty much uh, like I was thinking James Garner is what might be my favorite Wyatt Earp. I, I think he's amazing in this, actually. I mean, I agree with you. I think he is incredible in this picture. For sure. Yeah. I think he's incredible in this film. Um, he is resolute. He is serious and very stern. Mm-hmm. And the thing about it, how he bottles up his emotions. Internalized, in very internal. He, he, he has internalized anger in this film that he never lets out, you know? And he is matched by Jason Robards Jr., yeah. who is Doc Holliday. Now, I know everybody loves Val Kilner, and Val Kilner's performance is something special, sure. but um, there are more than one way. There's more than one way to play Doc Holliday. And um, Val Kilner is like a romantic, <laughs> is romanticized, almost foppish. Um you know, hero. Yeah. You know, in a way. It's this this um, this relationship between Earp and Holiday is less sentimental. Yeah, it's less sentimental. It's it it has a strains. Yeah. Where it does fall apart. It has a strains. Um Jason Robars is definitely more cynical. For sure, yeah. For sure. Um he's more realistic. I mean, he is the voice of reason. He is like the Greek chorus who keeps telling Riot Herb, look, you're not fooling me. I know what you're doing. Yeah. You can hide under that badge. I know what you're doing. 
you're just I mean, what's that one line? If you're gonna kill like me, will you not about drink like me? Right. That's a great moment. That that confrontation between the two of them is fantastic and brilliantly acted. And I think I, the reason why I said earlier too that Tombstone feels a little rushed. Um, basically, after everything that happens after the OK Corral shootout. Uh, always felt like, well, this is just going through it pretty quickly to the point of just having a bunch of montages in that film. And it doesn't bother me. I still love that movie. But Our the Gun is really the sort of deliberately paced, but still, again, it's it's not it doesn't overstay its welcome. It's not very long, but it just surprised me that it, it begins with the confrontation of OK Corral and tells the story of what happens from there and even includes some court procedurals battles. <laughs> you know, which you don't yeah. normally see in these types of movies. The reason why the film was so, two so, so montage is because it was a very, very long movie when he shot it. Mm-hmm. So they had to sh- shorten it, you know, to, you know, so a lot of the things, they had to chop a lot of scenes, right. you know. Um, yeah, but, but Art of the Gun is, which was a flop, you know, when it came out because People still wanted to see Wyatt Earp as this heroic figure. They didn't like the idea of Wyatt Earp being a revenge killer. Yeah. A ruthless revenge killer. They didn't like that. You know, it was uncomfortable for them. And um, uh, even though the movie claims to be truth, it's not. They do a lot of historical. <laughs> Rewrites and changes in them, you know, but it's still an incredible movie. You know, it was a film, I don't know if I saw this as a kid, but I remember seeing it on TV, on TV, and then when it came out on DVD, you know, I finally got it. That was on Blu ray, it's on um, Kino Lober label. Um, I'm sorry, not Kino, is this Kino Lober? No, sorry, Tw- Twilight. Time. Oh, okay. Twilight Time, which means probably King of Over may, may re-release it. Probably they will. They've been re-releasing a lot of, you know, um, Twilight Time titles. Now, the, the, the label doesn't exist anymore, and the rights have now reverted back. So probably King of Over may come out with it. Maybe a new restoration. I hope so. Yeah, me too, because it's, go- uh, it's gorgeously shot, and it almost predates... Well, I, I know Peckinpah was making films around this time, or, yeah, obviously. Well, say cinematographer, Lucien Billard. Yeah. Lucien Billard, The Wild Bunch, shot this movie. Yeah, I can, I can see I can see this why they sort of reflect, you know, each other in that way. And that I think, you know, what was interesting for me watching this, too, is that it's more of, like, the struggle for political control of tombstone and less of a shoot 'em up action picture, because that's what I bet audiences were expecting. I was, I think they were expecting more gunfights and shootouts and they're there. They definitely happen, but it's again, very deliberate in how it approaches everything. Well, yeah, it's like Robert Ryan, Robert Ryan again, Robert Ryan plays I could, and he does in line. He tells his men, he said, Audis, I could buy law. Yep. I'm here. I got to make it. Yeah, that's that's, right. a, that's a great scene, and, and the death of Ike Clanton, uh, Clayton p- plays out very differently though, <laughs> the way it does in uh, Tombstone. Right. It didn't happen that way. I mean, it didn't make yeah. it up, but it still dramatically it works. Right. Yeah, no, I, right. I know they have to do those things for dramatic license and everything, and that's totally fine. And I, I the, certainly the that um, the moment with Wyatt Earp 
telling the, uh, one of the bad guys, uh, okay, you can draw on two, but I'm going to draw on three. <laughs> that whole shoot shooting is pretty great. And like, Oh yeah. It's $50. Yeah. $50. You can draw on two. I'll draw on three. One, two. And he shoots the hell. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> that's why I thought of Peckham Paw too. Is like it gets really when it gets intense and confrontational like that. It does. It gets violent. I mean, I love that. Fifty dollars. Yeah. Fifty dollars. You get paid fifty dollars. Uh, you know, come to one, two, three. You can draw on two. Oh, uh, you can draw on two. I still draw on three. One, two. <laughs> the guy draws a two. He pulls on three. He pulls them away. You know. No, but I I, I really right. like the relationship between Earp and, and Holiday in this because, like, like I mentioned, it's less romanticized, I guess, uh, than it is in Tombstone. Right, you the final scene. You compare the final scene in Tombstone where they're playing cards, right. and you know, and so here it's like you know he's in the senate. Right, once again, he's in the sanatorium, and. He basically lies to him. I'm talking about Earp. He says, oh, I decided to take the job, and I'm going to see you. i see you later. You know, like as if he's going to see him again, and then we find out he's never coming back. Mm-hmm. He's not going to take the job. He's not going to see Doc Holliday. And Holiday knows it. He knows it. Yeah. You know, he knows he's a BSer. You know, this is goodbye. You know, and you know that he will die soon. He will die soon. He knows it. You know, and I think that ending is beautiful. I agree. I think that ending is really beautiful. Yeah, yeah. I was surprised at how moved I was, and it, it, again, it, it, he just knows how to create characters that are memorable, and a lot of that has to do with the casting. Uh, but every once in a while, and we'll definitely get to this with um, Eagle has landed. He <laughs> he has some surprising atypical casting, and uh, in, in that I was watching our next film, Joe Kid, and I went. Is that John Saxon as a Mexican? What? John Saxon, John Saxon, played, John Saxon has played a lot of Mexicans. I, I guess so. And I mean, I, I realized Charlton Heston also did early on, of course. Yeah. Well, yeah, Touch of Evil. Um, um, Appaloosa, the Marlon Brando Western. He's a Mexican there. Um, uh, he's, he's played all kinds. He's played uh, John Saxon. I, you don't even know his background, but he always played. And he, well, he passed away like six months ago. Yeah, yeah. pretty recent. Yeah. Um, um, he played so many different roles, so many different characters, um, so many different characters. Um, but um, Joe Kid is is like a throwback to John Sturge's earlier westerns. These tight taut westerns that he made like the law and jake wade mm-hmm. which he did right after bad day bad day of black rock with robert robert taylor and um richard widmark that's like only 86 minutes long once again really great use of landscape particularly in the last 20 minutes of that movie really great use of landscape and this ghost town the area fantastic right um and Joe Kidd is what, 88 yep. minutes? It's very breezy it's very and, and it moves. Very yeah. breezy, very tight. I almost want to call it a throwaway movie. And when I don't mean disrespect by right. that. What I mean is that it's kind of like a minor picture. Hey, let's just knock this one out of the park, see if we can do yeah. it. Yeah, and that's there's nothing wrong with that. I've always liked Joe Kidd. I liked it when I saw it at the show with my father, you know? Oh. When that, you know and it has a great poster. Mm-hmm. You're going to get a one-sheet poster. It's great. 
it's really Clint Eastwood holding a shotgun, and you almost can see it's like it's three D. It's going to be like he's pointed at you. Um, very me- very memorable got- climax. <laughs> you got Robert Duvall. You got um, John Saxon, Don Stroud. Um, a climax which logically doesn't really make sense. <laughs> And actually, it was an idea of John Sturgis. He said, we need something to learn here to despise yeah. this up. And John who came up with that idea. Well, let's just do that. It doesn't really make sense. Except you go like, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's entertaining. That's what counts, you know. And, right. And, and watching Clint Eastwood and, 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 and Robert Duvall butt heads is, is very fun. But I miss the, the, the modest movie. I missed a movie that is just simply made to entertain you for 85 minutes, 90 minutes, 100 minutes, which doesn't expect to give you anything in return except something to entertain you. Yeah, and it's very streamlined and concise. If you're looking for anything deep, if you're looking for anything of weight, not here. And most movies, I should say, in the 1930s, 1940s, 1950s, 1960s, into the 70s, into the 80s, a lot of films were, well, I would call, pot boilers. You know, movies that you come in, you watch it, you leave. Yeah, good, good old-fashioned Pulp like Fiction, it. short and streamlined, and and you know who you 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 may know how things play out, but you're still entertained by it. I, I recently caught up with. Uh, I haven't watched a lot of Bud uh, Bedecker films but um oh. seven men from now was the one i saw yeah i loved it yeah yeah and then you should check out comanche station and ride loathsome yeah those are next right is a particular favorite of, of martin scorsese yeah i think those are now available on the criterion channel uh they just put out a whole bunch of his work I think they are and they're available on blu-ray and you can find them anywhere um they come out in packages. I mean, Ryan Lowe's in Comanche Station. And these are movies. These were essentially B movies that were shot in two weeks. Yes, exactly. With memorable villains. And he had no expectation. Oh, Ryan Lowe's you really to check out because I think that was the first film role of um, uh, James oh, Coburn. Great. It's great in that film. And because of that movie, he got the part of Magnificent Seven. But he, he's terrific in Ryan Lonesome because he plays – he's not really the bad guy. He's kind of a quasi-bad guy, but he's like the dumb one. <laughs> the bad guy is Lee Van Cleef. All right. There we go. You know, yeah. Lee Van Cleef is the bad guy who only appears in maybe not more than 10 minutes of this movie. But he makes his presence known in every scene. Yeah, same with Lee Marvin in uh, Seven Men from Now. He's he's pretty great, right? <laughs> right. There's something else we got to talk about soon, Bud Bud Bettinger. Yeah, there's you know? so many. Th- yeah. yeah, there's so many great directors like that that I'm more curious to check out, and certainly something like. Have you done Wild Walsh? Uh, no, 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 no. The hard drinking one eyed Irishman. You got to do Wild Walsh. All right. White Heat. My oh, God, well, top of the world! Of course, huh? that's that's the one I've seen for sure, and I love. Why he uh, uh, objected Burma, um, uh, uh, manpower, um, 
so many great films while I watch. So many great films, you know. Yeah. Band of Angels, one of his more really interesting movies with, you know, with Kirk Doug, I'm sorry, uh, Clark Gable and Sidney Poitier. Hmm. Really recommend wow. that picture. Wow, well, there you go. I mean, that's, sometimes it's just all about you get the right actors. I'm, I'm sold, you know, and that's just, that's the case for Joe Kidd. Like Clint Eastwood is being Clint Eastwood. And, you know, Robert Duvall is the bad guy and they basically go at it and try to figure out how to bring down John Saxon. And it's simple and streamlined. And and I enjoyed watching it. Uh, Yeah. Uh, After what's the guy carried the name? Chama? You have to Chama? Oh, yeah. I want you to Chama, you know. So, um, yeah, it's a a lot of fun, but I've always liked it. I've always just liked it for it's, 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 it's. Very modest satisfactions. Yeah. I've always liked it. You know? Oh, yeah. Um, and then we go to McHugh, which is so odd. It is such a weird movie. And, <laughs> like, again, great moments for sure. There's, uh, yeah. you know, whenever there's a, a heist or a car chase, I'm, I'm, I'm 100% on board, particularly the uh, very surprising final chase that takes place on a beach. Which it's a great chase. It's great. That's a great chase. And John Sturgis, like the old guy, directed all his own action sequences. He didn't farm it out to a second unit guy. He does all action sequences. And that chase is fantastic, yeah. right? Now, it's with John Wayne, the only movie he ever made with John Wayne. Talk about John Sturgis. And the story behind that movie is it's such a bizarre film. A movie, by the way, that has a huge cult following. A Interesting. Lot of okay. And I, I'll explain. Maybe I know why in a minute. John Wayne turned down Dirty Harry. Got it. Okay. okay? And he regretted it. He, he didn't like it. He said it was too violent. Even though politically it was right up his alley. And he regretted it. So he decided, I, I want to do a film like that. And Westerns by 75 were really trailing off, so John Wayne had to find something. So um, he comes across McHugh. Now, John Wayne at this time was 70 years old, got a bad toupee, he's way too fat. He's driving around in a Pontiac Trans Am that he's clearly too big for. And then he can barely squeeze in the car, okay? But it's a really interesting film because... This movie defies everything that John Wayne stood for. This is a movie about corruption in the police force. Yep. This is a movie where the film begins with several policemen being killed, assassinated. We find out the killer was John Wayne's partner. So John Wayne's Christopher Force to break out corruption in the police force. There's a later scene where, get this, John Wayne robs a drug dealer to steal drugs from him to give to Colleen uh, Dewhurst, who's an informer, because he's a co-gaddick, so he could give her information, then he sleeps with her? (laughs) Yeah, that was a little... Uh, kind of a stretch. It's John Wayne. Yeah. Now, if this was Burton Reynolds, I'd go like, okay. If this was somebody else at that time, I'd go like, okay, I can see that. 
John Wayne robbed a drug dealer to give it to a woman who later said, what? what kind of Looney Tune movie is That's exactly this? what I was thinking when I was watching it. I mean, there, there's, there's definitely comic relief. You got like David Huddleston here. Um, yeah. You know, there's the, and just some of the the sequences involving them trying to steal uh, some money uh, through a um, like a laundry uh, basket. You know, the case involving that. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and, wait, I, I really like this picture. I really <laughs> do. So silly. <laughs> so so he gets um he he, he quits the force. Okay. And so he doesn't have his gun. So he goes to a guy who gives him a machine gun. He's got this machine gun with a silencer on it. So I'm like, whoa. So it's just that easy. No, so generally walk around with a submachine gun. <laughs> what you know? <laughs> yeah, it's turning into Rambo all of a sudden. <laughs> right. Because but definitely one of the fascinating things was that you know Hollywood had changed. Yeah really changed in the 70s. And all these older guys, like John Wayne, John Wayne died in what, 77, 70, 79? I think so, yeah. It was so, right after the shootest, right? Right. That was his last picture. The shoot, yeah, the shoot was 78. Yeah, I think so. Oh, 76? So, right. So, um, all these older guys were, you know, they were older, you know, and they were, they weren't what they were, you know, they weren't the box of his giants, what they were. Um, even though you have to keep in mind that in, from most of the 70s, John Wayne was still the number one box office star in the hmm. world, in America. You know, he really was number one. You know, um, he was the culture in a way, you know. But by the mid 70s, it began to go kind of f- soft. And, and so um, he looks and there's, there's Clint Eastwood yeah. right on his shoulder. I know this movie feels like you know? the clashing of the old and the new, you know. Right. There's Burt Reynolds right over there, you know, looking over him, and all these young guys coming around. And John Wayne says, well, give me something I can do to, um, you know, deal with these guys, right? And he does this. And it's worth seeing. It's really worth seeing, just for the bizarre nature uh-huh. of it. But like I said, that final chase scene is rocks. Oh, no kidding! Yeah, I mean, there's some long stretches of like a great, great stunt. Yeah, you know? there, there's definitely some tedium and some like you know just cops hanging yeah. out. Yeah, it drags. Yeah, you know, it definitely drags. But when it's on, it's on. <laughs> Part of the script, part of it is John Wayne. With John Wayne, he's a seventy year old fat guy. He can't move. You know, <laughs> he can't move. You know, you know. I mean, I mean, this is thing that kills me about the picture is that he beats up a bunch of people who are half his age, and I go like, this guy could beat them. You know. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, hey. When we get to when we get to the eagle has landed, you you do have to prepare yourself for some accents. Let's say, uh, yeah, like like Michael Caine is a Nazi. Well, they explain because he was raised in England, so that's what explains it. Sure. But then you have once again Robert Duvall. The second time he worked with him, um, who's kind of 
of an interesting character. Actually, Duvall's character is actually quite interesting. Yeah. The setup is interesting. Actually, it's, a, it's based on a novel, but the novel and the movie is a ripoff of another movie called Went the Day Well, mm. which I really should get people to okay. see. Okay, I'll definitely put that on my list. It's, 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 it's a British movie from the mid-40s, and it is about a uh, some Germans who come into the small English village posing as English soldiers who are planning to take over the town and the community, the area, to start a German invasion from within this town, from inside England. And when the people find out there's a mistake and people find out that these are Germans, the um, the people fight back. Yep. And it's a it's surprisingly violent. Hmm. Now, not what on the kind of level we could see today, but for a movie from that period, it's kind of shocking. You know? Well, I'll definitely look into that so, for sure. Um yeah, it's called Went the Day Well. Went the Day Well. Now, um and once again, like in this film, uh Went the Day Well, they put the people in a church and Eagle has landed. They put the people in a church, you know, the townspeople in a church. It, it rips off a lot. <laughs> okay. But the premise is that simply you got you got a bunch of German soldiers who are sent to this who are sent to on this plan to kidnap Churchill. It's a far fetched plan. Go kidnap Churchill and then force the English to uh, capitulate. And the person who's come up with this plan is Robert Duvall, whose character is really interesting because he knows he's the fall guy. Mm, Yep. Because if this doesn't work out. uh, Well, we see what happens to him. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, and um, even when he goes to see Himmler, who was played by Donald Pleasance, third time Donald Pleasant had worked with John Sturgis. He was in he's in Hallelujah um, Trail, of course. He's in The Great yeah. Escape, and uh, he plays Himmler, and he's very cagey because Himmler says, "Okay, I'll go with you." You know, basically, he's going to go along with the plan until it starts going sour, and then he's going to remove any evidence that said, I had nothing to do with this. Okay, and there's this one line that Duval says near the end of the movie when everything has fallen apart, and he says to his assistant, he says, "You know, he tell him go." He, it's not clear, but he's in France, right? You know, he tells him go, just go. It's over. It's finished. You know, go back to Berlin. You know, act for mercy. And he says this line: "They sued me up for my coffin months ago." It's a wild yeah, that is a great line. That's a line. Right. He, he, he knew. He said, I'm dead already. Yeah. I'm a fall guy already. Well, it's a, it's, it's a really interesting, like, again, expectations were kind of high because I'm like, oh, it's based on a Jack Hickens novel, uh, screenplay right. by Tom Mankiewicz, and mm-hmm. you got that incredible ensemble again. But uh, it does build effectively to a great final 15-minute uh, you know, I'll give it more than that. I say more like forty-five. Yeah, you're, minutes. Pro- you're probably right. No, it is probably a little bit longer than I'm. Yeah, minutes. but you and have like Donald Sutherland <laughs> playing Irish. That's oh, that's over yeah. the top. You know, I can't expect him to come in. Well, for me, look at Charles. <laughs> <laughs> what do we? Yeah, and 
I think I think one of the more I think one of the more interesting characters is uh, Gene Marsh, who uh, plays a spy. Yeah. Yeah, there's a similar character in Winter Day Well, who was played by Leslie Banks, who was a guy. You know, same thing. A, a nice person in the town who turns out to be, you know, traitor. Um, but Jean Marsh, is, Jean Marsh is, is is interesting. You know, her career is. I mean, I mean, her character is very interesting. And we give some background on why she is so anti-British. Yeah. Okay. Um, Larry Hagman is a cartoon. <laughs> yeah, for sure. He's a cartoon. I I definitely would have moderated that 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 performance. Yeah, he's just bummed that he didn't get to see any action. So he <laughs> right. Well, he, he gets to see action. Oh yeah, he right. does. boy, mm-hmm. didn't he? he gets to see action of the yep. ass. You know, but. Um, it's the performance is all over the place, and really, Gene Marsh is really good. I I think Duvall is really good. Sure, the acts may not work, but his character is fascinating because that line always gets me. They, they, I was suited up for my coffin months. <laughs> Go, um, but <laughs> but Donald Sutherland is that. Can I have another one of those Russian firecrackers? Oh, my goodness gracious. Oh, who's my lucky charms? He's borderline cartoon at times. Uh, and He is a cartoon. And the relationship he has with Jenny Agutter is... Uh, Which is a big mistake because it's very obvious what should have happened between mm-hmm. them. Very obvious what should have happened between them. Not what she did to the boyfriend or the wannabe boyfriend. She should have done it to yeah. him. That's what it should have happened. Yeah, it would have, it would have, it would have packed a, a much better, you know, stronger wallop at the end if that happened. I, I can I can rewrite the ending of this movie always in my head. You know, when they go to try to find him and they find out he's gone. You know, I, I mean, I I rewrite it in my head. I said I know exactly how to end this. You know, you know. I know exactly how to end this ending. I would have had her. I would have had had her sitting outside the cab, the, the cabin, with a shotgun in her hand, and we see what happened. I, I, I rewrite it in my head. It's not a bad film, as I said before. Right, he kind of walked away from the pictures that I'd done enough. By this time, you know, don't forget he had been making movies for over forty years. I think this was his last film. He was right. Tired. And I think the other thing, too, was that I think knowing how he worked and watching his movies, he constructed this film in a way that you can't cut any way other than what I do. I know there was there was not anyone else like him at the time. And certainly he he earned, uh, you know, his place in the world of film at that point. And I kind of went, yeah, it's okay that this one isn't, you know it's it's very imperfect but it's still entertaining and again he knows how to set up certain characters and that final battle it it really makes me go yeah that's 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 sturgis you know at his, at his best sturgis. yeah yeah and like i said he only directed his own action sequences he didn't form them out to somebody and i will say this you know you and i both did it um you know our friend colin Suter in his show um in his show, uh, you know, Christmas movies, actually. Uh, Fanny and Alexander. Oh, right. Go back and listen to that podcast. It's really great. Really mm-hmm. great. Where he talks about Fanny Alexander. Yeah. Um, the last few minutes, he, this is true, I remember, he posted something. He asked people, 
you know, he asked, he asked my, I asked my, I can't do Colin. You know, he's got that voice. I asked my Cinnabon files. Oh, you know, name the best and worst pictures. You know, name, name. Now he's going to be upset. <laughs> he's going to be upset. Name the best and worst. Last movies of a director. Okay. Yep. And I contributed a bunch of them. You contributed. You did, did a great one. What was it? Largent. Oh, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which he pronounced Largent? No, it's no, it's uh, we're, Largent. We're, you know, we're we're white dudes from the suburbs. We don't know how to speak. <laughs> yeah. Largent. You know, Largent. Largent. You know, it's like what what is something he did? Um. Oh. <laughs> Okay. I should save that thread somehow because things get lost sometimes in the world of Facebook posts, and that was a really great one. I should save that. Yeah, but he, right, and I contributed a bunch, and um, the like the best final movies and the worst final movies. Yeah. you know, and I didn't put Sturgis because because um. Uh, Eagle has Eagle has landed. It's betwixt neither. It's it's betwixt the yeah. two. It, it's not as best. It's not as worse. Exactly. It's you know? like right in the middle. But when it's but when, it's, when it's, it's on, it's on. I think you know. Yeah, when it's on, it's on, and when it's off, it's really yeah. off. So it's 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 I, I it's not as worse, and it's got a great twist ending. Oh it's sure, yeah, twist. no, that was a great surprise. When you see it, it's very surprising. When you yeah. see it, very surprising. He goes like, man, which, is, yeah, you know, but, but, um, um, so that's why I didn't put, I, it, 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 it doesn't fit in any category. I mean, it turns out the best or the worst, but I didn't put it. But for those of you, listen to Fanny Alexander and listen to the end where he talks about the best and worst final movies of directors. You contributed a bunch. I contributed a bunch. I think they're really interesting choices that people made, you know, and choices that I said, how come I didn't think of that? that there, there probably could be a whole podcast where you just do that for, you know, talk about. That's an idea. We could, somebody will do that one yeah. day. We could spend a whole podcast doing that. Yeah. You know, well, I mean, in terms of, in terms of Sturgis, yeah. I really enjoyed all the films that, I mean, certainly I, Last Train from Gun Hill and Hour of the Gun were probably my two favorites of the ones Mm -hmm. that we talked about, but there are strengths throughout all of these films. And he had a genius for managing ensemble casts. His style was clean, uncluttered, you know, he, yeah. And he, he wasn't really a Hollywood player. Like he did approach it like work as a job because, you know, I wouldn't, he loved movies, obviously, but it wasn't to the extent of like these crazy people who just live and breathe movies like Tarantino or something. Cause you know, he, he loved to fish and he was an outdoorsman and you know, Hey, that's great that he did his job and did it really well. And he always let the story tell itself and you really get involved with all of these characters. And he broke so much ground with the Western genre and, you know, what can you say about the scores for Magnificent Seven and Great Escape? I mean, they're they're, they're timeless and you get them stuck in your head, <laughs> you know. Yeah, and I, I would say that also the thing about Sturges is something that Peter Bogdanovich one brought up years mm. ago. He said the great thing about these older directors 
is that they had a life before they started directing movies. Yeah. Like, for example, um, John Huston had been, even though John Huston was the son of an actor, he had been a soldier in the Mexican army. He had been a boxer. Uh, he had um, um, traveled the world. Um, Otto Preminger had been was a lawyer. Leo McCary had been a lawyer. Uh, Sam Fuller, great Sam Fuller, had been uh, a newspaper reporter. He had seen everything. He knew all the worst kind of people. Um, Harold Hawks had been a race car driver and also had built airplanes. Huh. Um, um, Raul Walsh, uh, even though he was in New York, he had been a cowboy. He had been an oil driller. Oh. He had been a ranch hand. He had been a stuntman. He lost an eye in a car accident. And the very next day, became a director. Um, the, you know, these guys were hard-drinking, hard-living. They lived a life. And Sturgis had lived a life. I mean, he did a lot of stuff during World War II. A lot of these oh, guys. Oh, yeah, for sure. William Wyler, John Ford, you know, they volunteered. They saw action. And the thing, and, and while making documentaries. So the thing about these guys is that by the time they were making movies, they were in Hollywood making films, they had seen a lifetime. They had, you know, they had, <laughs> as I said, <laughs> if I, I like to say, you know, they had been to every whorehouse you know, <laughs> in Chicago, in San Francisco. They've been around. Yeah. Which is why if you see movies, there's a maturity in movies that there tends to be a lot of juvenile stuff, and I'm not just talking about like comic book movies. I don't mean that. But there's a kind of juvenilia that you see in films because they're made by men and women too, who have you really grown up? Have you lived life? Have you killed a man? You know, Tarantino pretty much lived his life in a video store and and in movie theaters. Right. So it makes sense that he would go on to make great movies because he was, you know, he could, he's a film scholar of, of sorts, you know. But it's a different yeah, time. Yeah. He makes movies about movies. Yeah, exactly. Which is fine with me. Of course. You know, we love, love, we love movies. movies. <laughs> I don't love all of them. But, you know, you fine with me. You know, nothing is greater than Django Unchained. I don't care what anybody says. You know, everybody looks at you. I love Django Unchained. I go watch that movie a hundred times. So, and, so, um, um, but, but you look at these guys, these older guys, and, and, and a lot of them were great people. John Ford was an awful person. I've heard. I've, I've been meaning to read you more know, about him. You know, like, please, I ask people to read my piece on Sergeant Rutledge in uh, RogerEbert.com. So good, and I didn't get to, to see yeah. the film yet, but I'm going to soon. Yeah, please see it. Uh, anybody see it, because, um, and I talk about John Ford, you know, and John Ford was not a great guy, but he made great movies. He made great movies, but he was not a great guy, you know? Alfred Hitchcock could be awful. Oh, yeah. Yep. Particularly the women. Awful, you know. Does that to be hindered? You know, awful. Um, John Houston 
could be a nasty piece of work. Even though of all the directors, let me ask you this. Of all the directors, living or dead, who would you love to spend a weekend with? Wow. Well, I mean, <laughs> it's tough to say because I are, I have a favorite. <laughs> so, uh, you know, and he seems like a nice guy. I don't know about Paul Thomas Anderson, to be honest. I won't. Oh, of you course. Know, that's an obvious <laughs> pick for me because everybody knows how I feel about him. Uh, in terms of some of the older dudes, that's a good question. You know, it wouldn't be it wouldn't be Orson Welles because <laughs> he doesn't. He seems like an intimidating. It, it, it depends on what Orson Welles you got. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I want to. I would love to learn a lot from him. Clearly. Um. My answer is always John Houston. No, that's a, that's a great answer. I mean, like, I Treasure of Sierra Madre is still in my top five all-time favorite movies. It would be a weekend of incredible stories. He would tell me a hundred fascinating stories. Maybe half of them were true. Uh, drinking, carousing, great food. Let's go down to a brothel. I know a great brothel and brothel for you. <laughs> Let's go down there. I'll introduce you to everybody. You know, I thought John Houston I was I thought right. John Houston was in the room all of a sudden. <laughs> right. You know, there is a statue of John Houston, Puerto Vallarta, by the way. Oh. That's where he lived the last 10 years, 15 years of life. There's a statue. I, I know very few statues to the film directors. Mm. Think that's about a good that. point. How many statues are there of film directors? Yeah, that's a good point. I actually don't know. <laughs> there is one of John Houston in Puerto Vallarta. Hmm. And um, there's a great story he used to tell that his last home was in Puerto Vallarta, you know, and he had a 99 year lease on it. And somebody said, why would you have a 99 year lease on a house? He said, because after I die, it all goes back to the jungle. (laughs) And I go like, yeah, that's Houston. That's like, I can imagine that. This house and you're gone and eventually... The jungle, the forest comes in and overtakes the house. And it's like the end of a John Houston movie. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you know one of my favorite Clint Eastwood movies is uh, White Hunter, Black Heart. And yeah, well, he does yeah. Houston. It's so good. Yeah. So good. Right. I mean, there's time when he's trying to capture his voice, mm-hmm. you know, you know, because like, oh, what's the movie? Um, um, Paul Thomas Anderson. There will be blood. There will yeah. be blood. Even in Houston. It was a hell of a show, Eli. Hell of a show. He's doing Houston. He's straight up, um, you know, the, the uh, oh gosh, what's the actor's name? Daniel um, Day-Lewis. Daniel is doing John Houston. He's, I mean, he's straight up doing John Houston. Yeah. Well, he's he's definitely a favorite of mine just for Treasure. I mean, he's made a lot of great movies, obviously, but Treasure of Sierra Madre became my pretty much my favorite Western period you know yeah it's it's the do we talk about <laughs> i did a while ago but i wouldn't mind doing it again i mean certainly we well we didn't know but, but the great thing about houston is is one of the things is that always that theme he goes back to over and over again in so many of his movies about a person a group of people after a something that they never get mm. 
He does it over and over again. They're after something they never get. Treasure Sierra Madre, Maltese Falcon, the man who would be king, the Kremlin letter, Moby Dick. He does it over and over again. People are after a thing, a goal, and they never get it. Or they have it briefly in their grasp and they lose it. Yeah, a fat city going all the way to fat city too. Right. Yeah. It's, that, that's something that he did over and that fascinated him, you know, and, and, um, yes, yeah, Tejas Sierra Madre and in such bleakness because what was it all for? Exactly. What was it all for? Uh, Same thing with Maltese Falcon. Same thing with Moby Dick. I remember as a kid, I used to see Moby Dick. You had shown on TV. That movie scared me. Hmm. It was like a horror film, particularly at the end when he's, you know, he's trapped on the whale, right? And, you know, his, he's dead and his arm is beckoning. Look, he beckoned us to come with him. He's like, come on with me, you know. And I go, oh, that this scared out, oh, man. <laughs> when you're eight years old and nine, you see it on TV, and they're like, this dead man is trapped in this whale. <laughs> come with me. I'm like, ah! Oh, man. You know, I... <laughs> Yeah, this was this was a great time. I really really appreciate you coming on. We'll do this again next year for sure. Uh, it, like again, I I was just so glad to catch up with a lot of John Sturgis films that I hadn't seen. Period. But really, everybody, uh, go see if you haven't seen Bad Day at Black Rock. It, it is also in my maybe my top thirty of all time. I love that movie. I could watch it tonight again for the like the tenth time. It is a textbook example of filmmaking that is perfect. Yes. I mean, it's it's unpretentious. It does what it has to do, it, and it does it brilliantly. I mean, it's just the story is there. The characters are there. All Sturgis had to do was just put all the pieces together. Yeah. and But it takes talent to put all the pieces together. It took real talent to put the pieces together. But it is um, um well thanks for asking me. Um I don't know how many have I done now. I did Manelli, I did Donnan, I've done Nick Ray. Michael Curtis. Yep. Um now Houston. I, I'm, I'm Houston. We're talking about Houston. Now <laughs> I clearly you want to do John um, Houston too. We've done them, but hey, we could always do them again. <laughs> We got too many films to talk about. I just I was just watching a week ago Under the Volcano ah, on Criterion. Yeah. Albert Finney. So, so bleak. Yeah. So bleak. Wouldn't mind revisiting that one. I meant to after we lost well, Albert. You 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 need a drink afterwards. It's bleak. Yeah. But um yeah, next time you next time you have an old film director, give me a call. Happy to. You know, it's funny that you're uh, compadre, your your podcasting cohort, Mr. Eric Childress, is the guest for the next episode for a director that him and I grew up with, and that would be what a break episode was. <laughs> <laughs> the late great Richard Donner. Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah. That's perfect. You know, and it, I, it's perfect. it was somebody like when when he passed, I did I did feel pretty sad. And yet at the same time, so grateful and thankful for a lot of the films that he made over the years, even if, you know, not all of them were up to snuff, 
there were a lot of classics throughout his filmography that Eric and I are going to touch on briefly, but also talk about some of the outliers. Even something like 16 Blocks is pretty solid. So, you know, mm-hmm. there's there's a lot of great work in the midst of all, uh, you know, the, the ones he's known for, like your Goonies and Superman and all that, of course. You got to talk about salt and pepper. Okay. <laughs> yeah, you mentioned that when you uh, you did the Christmas movies, actually, on the Lethal Weapon films, which was great. Yeah, it was the prototype. That film is the prototype for the Lethal Weapon films. It really great. is. I'm going to catch up with that. It, actually, now it's coming out in Blu-ray this fall. So, um, Unfortunately, not by that label I I have any contact with. But yeah, I mean, but that was the prototype. That was the prototype, you know. So um, yeah. So where can people find you? Uh, obviously, at the Movie Madness uh, podcast. Okay, so like I said, I'm on WHPK Radio. I'm on Instagram. Okay, under my name. Uh, I'm also on Facebook under my name. I'm also on Twitter under another name because <laughs> oh, that goes through that story. Oh boy! Oh boy. Um, because of some negative comments I made about Richard Jewell, the movie, which evidently upset a lot of guest MAGA people, and <sighs> they got me banned. So I'm back on Twitter, but under the same name. Yes, and I recommend everybody checking out the work of Sergio, whether written form or in podcast form, certainly uh, over at nowplaynetwork.net, where you can check out his many appearances with Eric on the Movie Madness podcast. And that's always a great time. That's right. Thank you again, Sergio. This was a blast. Uh, everybody, yeah, it is fun. I was really looking forward yeah, to this. Everybody should check out these uh, lesser known films from John Sturgis and stay tuned for uh, a great discussion. It'll be later in the month in September because both Eric and I are a little busy in mid to late September. So until next time, mask up, be safe, visit directorsclubpodcast.com. Send me an email at directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com and visit patreon.com slash directorsclub. And I'm also over on Letterboxd at Jim Laskowski. And thank you again so much to my guest, Sergio Mims, for talking John Sturgis. And we'll see you in late September for Richard Donner and Eric Childress. Thanks, everyone. I love you. I love you. Yeah, that's what I wanted to say.